Welcome to Skim This. An alarming baby formula shortage has been keeping parents up at night. And this week, D.C. finally got the memo as lawmakers and the White House started to take action. We spoke to the U.S. Surgeon General to find out when formula is going to be on shelves again and what the government can do to make sure this doesn't happen again. This will certainly prompt a deeper investigation and reflection on what could be done going forward to ensure that these types of challenges don't stress our system and the way that people are experiencing right now. Also on the show, we've got the other big headlines from the week, including the results from Tuesday's primaries, a big W for equal pay, and an airline love triangle that seems like it's straight out of Lady Whistledown's latest pamphlet. And to wrap things up, if you feel like your whole TikTok for you page sounds like this, we're back with Hot Girl ADHD Hacks, you're not alone. We'll dig into why people consult social media for health advice and the benefits and drawbacks of a crowdsourced physical. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Let's start with some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, Ukraine's military ceded control of the strategic port city of Mariupol to Russia on Tuesday. On Tuesday, Ukraine evacuated hundreds of soldiers at a steel plant in Mariupol after fending off Russian troops for 83 days. This marks Ukraine's surrender of the city, where Ukrainian officials estimate nearly 20,000 civilians have died. It also marks the first big win for Russia since the start of the invasion. Mariupol is strategically located between annexed Crimea and other Russian-backed territories, and it's one of the biggest trading hubs in the region. This surrender is a setback for Ukraine, because if Russia decides to cut off the port, Ukraine's economy would take a huge hit. Also this week, a Russian soldier pleaded guilty in the first war crimes trial of the Ukraine conflict, admitting to killing an unarmed civilian. While Moscow denies its forces have targeted civilians, the prosecutor at the International Criminal Court said this week the court is sending its largest team ever to investigate war crimes. As Ukraine regroups and investigators continue their work, other European countries neighboring Russia are paying close attention. This week, Finland and Sweden formally applied to join NATO, but some old political tension has another NATO country, Turkey, saying, "Mm, not so fast. Turkey is threatening to block the two countries from joining the alliance after they refuse to extradite members of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, also known as the PKK, which has been designated a terrorist group by Turkey, the U.S., and the EU. Remember, all existing NATO members have to sign off on new countries joining the alliance. So unless Finland and Sweden give Turkey what it wants, they won't be able to join the club. Okay, next headline. Voters in five states, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Kentucky, Idaho, and Oregon, went to the polls on Tuesday for their primary elections. And all eyes were on two states. In Pennsylvania, a.k.a. the swing state with the open Senate seat, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman won for the Democrats, while the Republican race between David McCormick and TV personality Dr. Oz is still too close to call. But former President Donald Trump, who endorsed Dr. Oz, is encouraging him to claim a victory anyway. 
Safe to say everyone's watching those results pretty closely. Meanwhile, down south in North Carolina, a Trump-endorsed candidate for Senate, Ted Budd, won the Republican primary and will go head-to-head with the former state Supreme Court Justice Cherry Beasley this fall. But not all Trump-backed primary candidates are going to be on the ballot this November. North Carolina freshman Congressman Madison Cawthorn, who's basically been involved in scandals since joining the House, didn't win his primary race. A rare defeat for a Trump-backed incumbent. If you're thinking, why are we watching these races so closely right now, months before Election Day? It's because this primary season is kind of a big deal. Democrats hold the House and the Senate by this much. So who GOP voters put up against them could make the difference between whether Republicans do or don't get control of Congress. And with big-ticket issues like abortion rights and high inflation on the minds of Americans, the stakes this November are sky-high. Okay, next headline. Some breaking news from the FDA at this hour. That agency just authorized Pfizer COVID booster shots for kids aged 5 to 11. Here's what you need to know. This week, the FDA gave the Pfizer booster shot an emergency use authorization for kids ages 5 to 11, clearing the way for more than 8 million kids in the U.S. to get their third dose. But it's unclear whether there's going to be demand for these boosters because less than a third of kids in the U.S. are fully vaxxed, and reports show that vaccination rates for kids under 12 are slowing down. Meanwhile, parents are also saying, what about shots for kids under 5? As that's still the only group that's not eligible for any vaccine in the U.S. That clearance could come as soon as this summer, but for some parents, that's still not soon enough. This renewed focus on kids and vaccines is happening as COVID-19 cases in the U.S. are on the rise again. Federal health officials said on Wednesday that a third of U.S. citizens live in places where the threat of infection is high enough that they should be wearing masks indoors again. Which brings us to a quick PSA. If you're looking for more at-home tests, the covidtest.gov website is up and running again and households can get eight free rapid antigen tests delivered straight to their door. And our final headline. U.S. soccer and the men's and women's national team unions announcing a historic new collective bargaining agreement. Every player, man or woman, will be paid equally. Here's the context. This fight over equal pay in soccer has been going on for a while. In 2016, just one year after winning the World Cup, the women's team accused U.S. soccer of wage discrimination. And in 2019, they drew a red card on their employer, saying they were getting as little as 40% of the men's salary. And they were getting paid less despite the women's team bringing in record viewership during the World Cup and winning four World Cup titles. How many times has the men's team won? That would be zero. So what's the game plan going forward? From now on, the women's and men's teams will combine and split prize money from international competitions, like the World Cup. And they'll get equal pay when it comes to appearance fees, game bonuses, and more. So consider the game changed. But while this is a big step in closing the gender pay gap for U.S. female athletes, there's still work to be done to even the paying field worldwide. Over the weekend, Buffalo, New York, experienced the deadliest mass shooting of 2022. 
when a white 18-year-old drove about 200 miles from his hometown to a supermarket in the city. Armed with an AR-15 and wearing body armor, the suspect live-streamed as he entered the Topps Friendly Market store. He then opened fire, killing 10 people and injuring three others. He's been charged with first-degree murder and faces life in prison without parole. So, why did this happen? The short answer is racism. The attack took place in a predominantly black neighborhood, and out of the 13 people shot, 11 were black. Officials confirmed the attack was racially motivated, after finding that the suspect became radicalized online and wrote that he had been inspired by a racist idea called the Great Replacement Theory. This is the same racist ideology that has fueled other deadly massacres, like the shooting in a synagogue in Pittsburgh in 2018 that left 11 people dead, and the shooting at an El Paso Walmart in 2019 that left 23 people dead. And according to Faiza Patel, the co-director of the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice, this ideology has become more and more prominent in American life, depending on where you look. The idea that immigrants are going to come and replace what is sort of ironically called a native population in the United States is a theme that we've heard for at least 100 years. The mainstreaming of these racist ideologies has been accomplished through various ways. One of the principal ways, which I think is, is in some sense the most problematic, is when you have high-level government officials or high-level political leaders who are espousing something that's similar to these racist beliefs and adjacent to them. I think that's a huge factor because that then makes those beliefs seem acceptable to people around the country. In a poll released just last week, the Associated Press and the NORC Center for Public Affairs Research found that around one in three Americans believe there's an effort underway to replace U.S.-born Americans with immigrants for electoral gain. And if one in three people seems high, Patel told us these beliefs and theories can easily be found on a TV, laptop, or phone screen. I think we have to recognize that, obviously, the media plays some role in this. People talk a lot about Tucker Carlson and Fox News and the kinds of things that are said on that channel. And certainly those, if you hear those things over and over again, they might have some influence on you. People also point to social media platforms where you can also easily find these kinds of views expressed. And I think the, the overall situation is that when these kinds of racist views become expressed in lots of different fora and you're hearing them around you, that makes them seem more acceptable to the individual as well. That doesn't necessarily mean that all of those people are going to go out and do something horrific. But it does mean that there is this huge number of people who view some Americans as being less than. Patel told us, despite an uptick in racially motivated violence, there is still a tendency to view these incidents, like the Buffalo shooting, as isolated, conducted by lone wolves. But as some commentators have pointed out, it's dangerous not to see these incidents as interconnected, especially considering the perpetrators of this violence didn't feel alone and had connected with people online. It's particularly interesting when you compare it to the way that 
violence by Muslims, sometimes linked to groups like Al-Qaeda or ISIS, is treated. In those cases, historically, even when there was zero operational link, right, whether some guy decides to pledge allegiance to one of these groups and goes out and commits some horrible act of violence, there was no indication that there was any real link, right? Like, it wasn't that they were talking to an ISIS operative who was directing them or supporting them. They just kind of shared the same worldview in some sense. And in that instance, the U.S. government definitely treated all of those attacks or attempted attacks as being part of the same ball of wax, if you will. But the model that we've seen here, you know, with respect to white nationalism, has been really treating them as isolated incidents as opposed to part of a greater problem. White supremacy is a poison. On Tuesday, President Biden visited Buffalo, where he acknowledged that the countless racially motivated massacres we've seen in the past few years are connected. We need to say as clearly and forcefully as we can that the ideology of white supremacy has no place in America. And that brings us to the question of what's being done to prevent future atrocities. After most mass shootings in the U.S., people often call for gun control. And that's been the case after last weekend, too. But as politicians have tried and failed to pass tighter gun control restrictions in the wake of tragic shootings, they're now turning to a different target, social media. This week, the New York Attorney General launched an investigation into the social media companies that were connected to the Buffalo shooting, including platforms like Twitch, Discord, and 4chan. But Patel told us, when addressing white supremacy and violence in this country, asking social media execs to clean up their platforms is only one piece of a much bigger puzzle. When we think about how to respond to something like this, the social media piece seems the easiest to respond to in some ways, right? Because social media often gets the blame in a way that I think is sometimes unfair because it almost seems like we expect Facebook and Twitter to solve sort of deep societal problems that we have in our country. And they're not set up to do that, right? So they may be able to suppress certain ideas on their platforms, but there's always going to be people and accounts that will slip through whatever net they cost, right? So I think that, you know, we can certainly look to social media companies to make sure that whatever policies they have are equitable and are actually trying to focus on people who are likely to commit violence. That being said, it's really hard to figure out, you know, in a great mass of people spouting really awful things online, which one is actually going to be the one who goes out and shoots up a supermarket. I think all of the solutions are very challenging and there is no single silver bullet. For more updates on the fallout from the shooting in Buffalo, you can head to theskim.com slash news. Almost half of the baby formula options have been out of stock across the U.S., keeping parents and now lawmakers up at night. 
Parents are turning to milk banks and to social media, searching for formula to swap. As the formula shortage strains families nationwide, lawmakers in Washington vowing to take action to help resolve it. The FDA is taking new steps to ease the baby formula shortage, including making it easier to import formula. This week, amid growing pressure, the White House and lawmakers took steps to address the shortage. On Wednesday night, President Biden announced he was going to invoke the Defense Production Act, something both Biden and President Trump used in the COVID-19 pandemic, this time to boost baby formula manufacturing. Also this week, the House passed two bills in response to the shortage. The first would ensure low-income families can continue to buy formula through federal programs. The second would provide the FDA with $28 million in funding to help with staffing and formula inspection. Next, both bills head to the Senate, where their future is TBD. To learn more about the administration's response and when we can expect to see formula on shelves again, we spoke to the Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. Vivek Murthy, and we should note we spoke to him on Tuesday. So right now, the U.S., which is the wealthiest country in the world, is struggling to provide basic nutrition to many infants. What is the Biden administration doing to address the formula shortage? And how long will it be until more formula is back on shelves? Yeah, well, I'm glad we're talking about this, Alex. You know, I I come at this not just as a surgeon general, but as a parent myself. I've got two small kids. They're four and five. It was just a few years ago that my son was actually on formula himself. And I remember I was tracking so closely which kind of formula he was getting. Was he getting the right amount? And so I know this is a, such an important issue for families. Uh, a couple of things I would say about this, I think they're important to keep in mind. How did this happen? You know, we had a situation where one of the major plants in the United States, which produces a substantial amount of the supply of baby formula, actually ended up shutting down because of concerns around safety. That was compounded, unfortunately, by some supply chain issues that we've seen during the pandemic that has affected other industries. And so there are a number of things that the administration has been doing. And and people should know this is actually a very high priority for the president himself. So number one, the president, the FDA have been working hard to increase production from manufacturers, number one. Number two, they've also been working now to import formula from other countries, including taking some of the supply that normally goes from our country to other countries and trying to redirect that. Uh, toward our domestic population. The third thing that they've been doing is working hard with Abbott itself, the company that had the plant that shut down, to reopen that plant, but to do so safely. They were able to broker an agreement so that Abbott can now start the process of reopening that plant. That will take still several weeks, at least a couple of weeks is what Abbott is saying, uh, two weeks for them to get production started and up and running, and then several weeks after that for them to fully ramp up. The last thing I'll mention is that there are also things that we can do to try to get distribution, you know, improved within the country. So we've got some parts of the country that have ample supply and others that have scarcity. So the president and and the FDA have been working with the retailers to also make sure that we get that supply to the areas where uh, there isn't enough formula. Stepping out of this conversation for a second, the administration also took a fourth step this week after we spoke to Dr. Murthy invoking the Defense Production Act. So we'll likely see formula manufacturing kick into high gear. Okay, let's get back to Dr. Murthy. In the short term, though, look, for parents out there who 
maybe in an area that does not have enough formula, a couple of things that I would uh, suggest. One is to consider changing brands of, of formula, recognizing that there may be other brands that have supply available on, on the shelf. I say this, you know, not lightly, because I know that it's a big deal for many parents to change brands. But the important thing for parents to know is that any brand that makes its way onto a shelf has met the FDA standards for safety. So even though I know it feels like a big shift, it's one that may help you get supply in the short term. The second is to potentially try getting supply from some smaller stores, including pharmacies and other smaller grocery stores, which may not normally get the traffic that the large grocery stores may get. And the third thing I would just say is also to talk to your doctor if you have concerns about specialty formula. If your child is on a special formulation, you're worried about switching perhaps to another brand, this is a time where talking to your doctor to figure out what alternatives are safe for your child would be good. And those doctor's offices sometimes actually do have free samples available uh, that they get from the companies and they may be able to provide that as well. A couple of things we don't want people to do is actually to make their own formula at home or to water down formula or use toddler formula for infants. So we're urging parents not to take those other pathways, even though I can understand why people would be thinking about them in times of a shortage. Why has there been such a hurdle to import formula into this country? So historically, uh, you know, the FDA has been, I think, understandably very protective over the supply, but also a very particular, I should say, about the standards that formula has to meet in order to be safe for our children. The process that we're going through right now, where the FDA is now open to working with other manufacturers to import supply in the short term, one thing I do want people to know is that that will not involve the FDA skimping on their safety standards. What they're looking to do is embark on an expedited process through which they can do that investigation, make sure that those safety standards are met, and then get supply in. But to more broadly to, to your question, Alex, I think that we always want to, in our country, be getting better at the processes that we have that are related to our health, our food supply, right? So this will certainly prompt the FDA to do a deeper investigation and reflection on what could be done going forward to ensure that these types of challenges don't stress our system and the way that people are experiencing right now. And thinking about longer-term solutions here, in the U.S., about four companies produce the vast majority of formula. And even if we open up this Abbott plant that was shut down, how is the administration thinking about longer-term solutions here so this kind of shortage doesn't have to happen again? Well, that's exactly right. And these kinds of incidents uh, should always uh, prompt like a deeper reflection and, and a, re a revisiting of strategy to see, like, are there better ways to safeguard our supply? And to ensure that even whether if there are perturbations that take place, like a plant shutting down, that it doesn't create risk for families. So that is part of the, the broader you know, rethinking and re-strategizing that uh, the FDA and the broader administration will do. And in that process, they'll look to explore a number of things from how can we ensure that we have more robust domestic production if we do need to invoke imports. How do we ensure that that can be done expeditiously, but also safely? And also just how do we ensure that we're all, FDA is always looking for ways that if they are safety concerns, they can identify them you know, even more quickly, act on them even faster. So part of that reflection, and I think re-strategizing will absolutely happen. But in the short term, the focus is in making sure that we get more formula and shelves. And just one more question. What does this shortage reveal about vulnerabilities in the U.S. healthcare and childcare systems? Well, one of the things we do know is that for kids to, to grow up being healthy and safe, they need a number of things. They need healthy food. 
They also need safe environments. Uh, they need to be able to go to school and learn. They need family structures and community structures that can support them. And one of the broader challenges that we've seen, Alex, that our kids are struggling with uh, has to do with their mental health and well-being as well. And safeguarding and protecting their mental health is part and parcel of ensuring our kids are, are safe and well. And I'll just say for a moment that when it comes to youth mental health, our kids have really struggled, not just during the pandemic, but even before the pandemic. It's one of the reasons I issued a Surgeon General's advisory on youth mental health, because we had a 57% increase in suicide among kids uh, in the decade prior to the pandemic. We've seen anxiety and depression rise among our kids, and not all of them have access to the care they need. Mental health is an area where my office will continue to focus. There's nothing worse as a parent than seeing them struggle and not being able to get them the help they need. That's why we've got to work on all fronts to make sure our kids uh, have the supports they need to live a healthy and thriving life. Dr. Murthy, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Alex. Take care. Spirit and Frontier, two of the U.S.'s biggest budget airlines, have been in talks to merge, potentially creating one mega-budget airline. But this week, their plans for a happy union hit a snag. When JetBlue entered the chat and basically launched a hostile takeover bid for Spirit. We'll break down how this love triangle could spell trouble for you at the airport, and trouble for airlines with the Justice Department all in 60 seconds. Spirit and Frontier soft-launched their relationship back in February when they announced a $6.6 billion deal that would create the fifth largest airline in the U.S. The CEO of Spirit told the press that it was a perfect match and that their company values were totally aligned. But just as Spirit and Frontier seemed ready to get hitched, out of nowhere, JetBlue came along last month to shout, I object, and offered $3.6 billion to buy Spirit. And in a moment worthy of The Bachelor, Spirit said no thanks and decided to stick with their original merger plan with Frontier, saying regulators probably wouldn't even let the JetBlue deal close. That's because this wouldn't be JetBlue's first brush with the law. Last September, the DOJ sued JetBlue and American Airlines over their domestic partnership, claiming they committed to trading information about what planes and routes to fly and how frequently flights took off. But even after all that turbulence, JetBlue hasn't backed out of this love triangle with Spirit and Frontier. And the fight for Spirit's heart is messier than ever. This week, JetBlue said, give us another chance and launched a new hostile bid to take over Spirit. Now, Spirit's board is apparently urging shareholders to reject this takeover attempt. But regardless of which airline Spirit ends up with, it's still unclear if antitrust regulators would sign a marriage certificate anyway. Because the DOJ seems concerned that airline mergers eliminate incentives to provide flyers with the best options. Basically, mergers can equal fewer flights and higher prices. So get ready to buckle your seatbelts, because budget airlines might not be in our budgets anymore. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? 
send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. If you've been on TikTok recently, you might have scrolled past videos like this. We're back with Hawk Girl ADHD Hacks. Signs of borderline personality disorder. Number one is fear of abandonment. The signs that I looked for to make me think that I had IBS. TikTok has basically become the new WebMD, where people go to learn about their symptoms. For me, it was um, chronic fatigue. Um, I was experiencing some anxiety that I hadn't really had before. And get sometimes unwanted healthcare advice. Here's an ADHD pro tip for you. If you struggle like me to unload the car and you forget that it's out here, leave the car running. From hot girls with IBS to late in life ADHD diagnoses, TikTok is where people are gathering to talk about their health conditions. To understand how the platform became the new doctor's office, we spoke to Dr. Adiola Adeleo, a psychiatrist at Banner Health Behavioral Hospital. And she told us people have always wanted to get to the bottom of their symptoms. TikTok is just the newest place where people are going. Before the advent of TikTok, there was WebMD, so people could read up on the diagnosis or whatever symptoms they're having because First, you're very worried when you're having symptoms that are not typical for you. You're worried and you want to know what that is like. And WebMD, for the most part, was moderated by professionals or experts. But with the rise of social media, we've gotten used to connecting with people in our networks, whether it's bonding over a neighborhood coffee shop or a successful dating app opening line. And talking about health online can also be really freeing and validating. There's a significant difference between reading about a symptom and a diagnosis and hearing someone talk about it or see it on TikTok. So now you're seeing someone that sounds like you, looks like you, and has some symptoms that might be similar to yours and they're visual and they're talking about it. There's that sense that, oh, you know, maybe this is what's been going on with me. And that's why you've seen this explosion of, you know, self-diagnosis because you now find someone you can identify with, especially if you're looking for answers. And I think that's a good thing. Besides that sense of community, people have also turned to TikTok because going to the doctor is expensive. When you're over 26 and you're no longer on your parents' insurance and you're not making a certain amount, you cannot afford healthcare. Healthcare is not cheap. And so it's easy to say, rather than run down to the urgent care where I'm going to get a bill of $500, even before talking to a doctor, it's just easier to now consult someone online. As more people have headed to TikTok to share their experiences, health conditions are becoming less stigmatized in general. But while there are a lot of upsides to sharing, it's important to note a lot of the people on TikTok don't have a medical degree. We're looking at you, gut health TikTokers. An expert can never be replaced by crowdsourcing, ever. I particularly am not in the mindset that social media is all bad in that. I want my patients to be educated. I want them to come in with questions. But I think the problem is when it starts and ends with social media without you consulting an expert to rule it out or rule it in as a diagnosis is where the problem lies, right? Is that then you just automatically believe this is what I have based on someone talking about it. Basically, using social media to understand your symptoms is one thing. 
But just because some lady in Michigan tells you you might have IBS, that's not the same thing as an actual diagnosis. So the next time you scroll past this, one of the biggest things that helped me go from this to this is ginger juice. Or this. These are the best foods to incorporate to support your overall gut health. Remember, TikTok is a great way to learn about people's health journeys, but you might want to seek out a medical professional for a gut check. No pun intended. Two people with depressive disorders are not identical, and their treatment may not be identical. Two people with the same kind of cancers could be different, right? And so it's, it's so important to always know that there's an expert that could give you more. Come in with your knowledge, but there's an expert that could go 10 steps further to help you. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Andrew Calloway, with help from Ko Takasugi Chernovin. And the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from the Skim. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career, with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9to5ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us.